0: Hey everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Ideology. I'm Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman, And this week we are picking back up on a conversation we started last week on eschatology in light of kind of an uptick of conversations in our culture, especially Christian culture, over the past 12 months, but I'd say even beyond that, wondering, you know, are we in the end times with all of the complexity and shifting sands in our culture and COVID and hurricanes and everything else? And so wanted to dive in to a biblical perspective on the end times and uh, wanted to take two full weeks where we could really parse this out. So last week, uh, Drew gave a great exposition, at least from maybe 20,000 feet on the three main positions on the end times and, and specifically the millennium premillennialism, millennialism post-millennialism, and amillennialism and uh, the implications there and some of the historical significance in our nation in particular. And, and our main point last week was the idea that we as believers, our posture doesn't need to be so much caught up with interpreting correctly the signs of Jesus's return, but being preoccupied with the fact that Jesus will return, that that has been the hopeful anticipation of the church for the past two millennia. So today we want to build on that concept and look more at the implications of the end times and talk about more in depth the posture of the believer relative to the fact that Jesus will return. What is What are the implications of that for us today in light of, again, the complexity of our culture and ongoing challenges and difficulties geopolitically what is the posture of the believer towards the return of Jesus? You know, I mentioned last week that these are deep waters. If you find your head spinning with talk of eschatology, even that word can can put people off And because there's so much baggage and so many backgrounds, so many church backgrounds that teach eschatology and speak on the end times in different ways. And just want to note that, yes, these are deep waters, but I take comfort again, I, I talked about it last week, but Mark Sharona, an eschatologist of all things, has read, he says, over 3,000 books on the end times and is only confident of one thing after all that study, and that is that Jesus will return for the church and establish his kingdom on earth. And then the the sequence of that and everything else is up for debate. He has his own opinions, and so do we, but but the, the church can take great hope that there is a consummation. There is an end point to all the misery and the pain and the loss and the disappointment that Jesus will put an end to it. And we're in this time period where we are in the the now and the not yet of the kingdom, but it is racing towards a time where Jesus will return bodily and we take great comfort in that. So so Drew, why don't you jump back in, give us a little bit more context, uh, and then we'll really look at the implications for the church today.
1: The book of Revelation is fascinating for us to study as believers and you know, sometimes I worry that so much of the conversation has been trying to determine the stuff we talked about last week and have a definitive answer for the exact circumstances surrounding Jesus' return. And, you know, we talked about that. But in a way, I actually think if we focus too much there, we actually miss the point of the book of Revelation. And this could be a good thought exercise for all of us. Of could you summarize the book of Revelation of, of what is God speaking to us through this book? How does it equip the church? And what's its point? And I actually think this year the book of Revelation is incredibly relevant, but I don't think it's because this year is necessarily, you know, some sign of God's return. I have no idea. It could be another 2,000 years or longer. I don't know. But regardless of when Jesus returns, I think the message of the book of Revelation is extremely relevant for us. To, to understand, really, this book and prophetic literature, so apocalyptic literature, which is one type of scripture, or prophetic li- um, literature, which is a lot more, uh, it actually is helpful to, to go back and look at Jewish history a little bit. And if you look at a map, and if you look at where Israel is, you'll see it, you know, it's kind of right up there against the Mediterranean Sea. And if you, can, if you have a map handy, you can look at it or just picture it in your mind. And historically, to the south of Israel was Egypt, which is one of the most ancient kingdoms in the world. And if you know the Bible story, you you know that Israel was in slavery in Egypt for a while. But really, throughout throughout all of Israel's existence and all of Scripture, there's always been some kind of power center in Egypt. Uh, Then, if you look on your map, if you go either um, north or if you go east, that's where the other empires were. So Babylon at first and Persia— out east, and then you have, or actually, I'm sorry, Assyria first, north, and then Babylon and Persia east, and then eventually became Greece. The point, though, is Israel has always existed at a crossroads. So if you look at their geography, what's happened is they've been caught in the middle of empires. What happens to any country caught in the middle of empires is they're in this constant state of flux of tension. And so the message consistently in Israel was, for our survival, we need to ally ourselves either to Egypt or to Babylon, either to Egypt or to Assyria, to the Greeks, to the Romans. We need some other human power to protect us and provide for us. And I think this is actually part of the, the pull towards idolatry, was not just that the idols were fun to worship, but that if I'm willing to worship the Assyrian gods, then I get the Assyrian protection in my time of need. And, and if you actually think about it from that perspective, you start to understand why they were vulnerable. They were weak. They weren't particularly powerful um, compared to their neighbors. There's a few moments where the kingdom of Israel had some power, but it was never, never to the scale that the surrounding nations did. So then if you look at that, probably the two most prominent parts of scripture, the book of Daniel and the book of revelation, I think they're both speaking to this idea of what do you do? In that circumstance, and the book of Daniel, it tells a story about this prophet being in exile in Babylon, you know, the height of opulence. And it was Babylon in Scripture is this symbol of wealth and of human power. And I've got to look at our world today, and I, I think um, it's not too dissimilar to what we experience and live in. And that, that's Babylon. And what's Daniel doing? His life message you see at the beginning of the book is though he lived in Babylon, he was never Babylonian. He was not willing to lose his identity as as a part of the people of God for the sake of bowing down to the idols of Babylon. He was able to speak to the king, but he was never, never one of them. He always remained uh, a member of God's chosen people. And at times that drove him to exile. At times it put him in the lion's den. And then at times he had the prophetic voice to speak to kings. And, And then when you think of it from that perspective, that's where you get all this crazy imagery. And I believe the message is, really the same as the message we see in the book of Revelation. And if I had to summarize it, I would just summarize it like this. God wins in the end, so do not ally yourself with the kingdoms of this world. And I'm just going to repeat that for emphasis. God wins in the end, so do not ally yourself to the kingdoms of this world. And you see, if I was to jump ahead into the book of Revelation, I find it fascinating that in the throne room scene in Revelation 5, we, we see the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then as John turns and looks, what instead he sees is a lamb that was slain. And if you jump ahead a few chapters, or actually a chapter, you see the, the scene with the 144,000 martyrs. And what's interesting about that is that is written very similarly to how in the Old Testament it would describe the armies of Israel. And so the strength of God's kingdom are the people who've been killed. You know, again, the lion of the tribe of Judah is the lamb that was slain. And you see in the book of Revelation, you see this weak church that conquers through martyrdom and testimony. And you see powerful empires that are constantly waging war, constantly um, pro- projecting a different kingdom. And I, and I think when I think of even the concept of the Antichrist, yeah, I could, I could see there being kind of a consummate Antichrist manifestation at the end of history. I have no idea what that will look like. But there's absolutely an antichrist spirit in the world today. We don't have to wait for the whatever end times perspective you have. But there has been, ever since Christ walked this earth, There there's always been empires and powers and kingdoms that have an opposing message to Jesus. And, that, and those kingdoms have a tremendous amount of power in the world. And just like it was for the early church, the question is posed to us, will we assimilate? Will we follow Will we come under the authority of Babylon or Rome or secular humanism or fill-in-the-blank empire, or are we okay to be the people of God that march forward in our weakness, that overcome through the cross, and in the end, we await our hope, which is Jesus coming and establishing his kingdom in fullness on the earth for eternity? For a while, Bible scholars would look at the book of Revelation and really view it as a book that was meant to empower the church in the midst of persecution. And of course, I think there is some relevance there, but in, in recent years, the scholarships changed a little bit. And there's actually an understanding of the book of Revelation is not necessarily speaking to persecution, but is instead anti-assimilation. In other words, if you, you, know, you look at the seven letters, there's only one person who was martyred in the seven letters. And it's not so much that this book was maybe written you know, after Nero's persecution, but at that time, it wasn't necessarily what we think of. There was persecution, but it was sporadic. Instead, a lot of the book of Revelation is written to this tendency for us to get comfortable in the world and to settle down in Babylon and to, to be okay to let the world set the agenda for us rather than holding on to being the people of God. And, you know, I would say there, there are eras in the church's history where that has turned into physical persecution, and we have brothers and sisters today that face that, and I know I have friends who face that in different parts of the world. And so that, that is a reality but there's another reality of a different type i don't want to use the word persecution but a social cost is probably a better way of saying it where we may not necessarily be persecuted but if we want to follow christ wholeheartedly in this world it will cost us and we won't be able to ally ourselves we will lose some of our social mobility we'll lose some of our social standing maybe positions at certain in certain professions or even in academia won't be available to us if we hold fast to the teaching of jesus And I think we're seeing a lot of those social trends where we won't quite fit in with this world. The world won't accept us. And I think Revelation speaks to that and says, what kingdom do you live for? Who do you believe
0: has the final authority? And this recognition that we await the kingdom of God. Yeah, and that's the theme throughout, I mean, the the entire narrative of Scripture. When you go all the way back to the garden and God's command to Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil— and then the temptation of the serpent that this fruit will, that, that it would open your eyes and make you wise like God and and this temptation to lean on a power outside of God himself that Adam and Eve succumbed to and then all of humanity has in their wake. And uh, reading back through Chronicles right now, and I'm really fascinated by the lives of the kings and was reading about Asa and Second Chronicles and you know, this this man starts so well, a heart after God, he fears God, and then has this kind of pivot in the middle of his life and is under threat and turns to Syria and you know, pays a sum of money and hires these mercenaries, and then God rebukes him. And that's where we get the, the famous verse, you know, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. And he goes on to rebuke Asa and and all, all the way through the narrative of the Old Testament, that Drew already you already talked about this temptation to lean on these other nations to draw on a power or a wisdom outside of God Himself, and that God used this intentionally weak kingdom, this intentionally weak people, that He wanted to demonstrate His power through. And you know, conversely, you see when they're in the Exodus, when they're backed up against the Red Sea, and and here they are, you know, under the gun, under the the Egyptian army and the chariots and this overwhelming show of force. And then God comes through in this supernatural way, in this miraculous way. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar for refusing to to bow down to him, his image. And they have this incredible display of faith that, you know, our God can deliver us from the furnace. But even if he doesn't, we still will not contradict his ways and disobey his commands. So you have these foils to this theme throughout the scripture, but by and large, uh, individuals, families, nations, this is the tendency to turn our back on God's power, God's commitment to us, and to ally ourselves with some other power outside of ourselves. And I was looking at 2 Corinthians 6, to to your point earlier, Drew, I feel like this summarizes neatly what, what we've been talking about here for these past few minutes. What agreement has the temple of God with idols, starting in verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And this is not distinct from apocalyptic literature. This is the message of not just the epistles, but this is the message of Revelation of the Book of Daniel. This is the message of the prophets. The prophets were the defenders of the covenant. Most prophetic literature actually is not just foretelling the future, but it's calling people back into covenant with God, calling people back into faith and trust in God. And then to bring the conversation forward here into our discussion today, looking at, you know, eschatology in the book of Revelation, you see this in chapter 18 of revelation in verse 4 then i heard another voice from heaven saying come out of her my people lest you take part in her sins lest you share in her plagues her being this metaphorical babylon representing the the sinful pride of humanity for her sins are heaped as high as heaven and god has remembered her iniquities and so on and so forth in the overthrow of babylon and it's this call to not just not to come out from her physically. Drew, you're just talking about how Daniel and others were deeply embedded into these sinful economies, these sinful political regimes, but to come out from among them in our hearts, in our practices, in our ways, to not align with the ethic and the ways of the kingdoms of this world, but to align with the ethic and the ways of Jesus while deeply embedded in the systems of this world. We were just in a conversation with some other folks, Drew. You were talking about signaling and the shift you've seen in our culture. Just would love to hear a couple of comments on that in this light.
1: You know, as, I, as we've talked about in the past or I've written about in the past, there's been a cultural Christian background in, our, in the United States where it's—the the, the fancy term is civil religion, and it speaks to the unspoken religion of our culture, you know, why there's, there's certain cultural symbols that have a religious meaning, even though there's not a state religion in the United States, and I think you could say that there has been this this civil religion of cultural Christianity in our nation for a while, for probably probably since its founding, where or at least that's been partially operative. And what I've noticed in the last several decades is a shift in the civil religion to a secular a secular type of belief system, and there's there's overlap between the two. Now, I look at this as someone who wants to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, and I am not a fan of cultural Christianity, and nor am I a believer in secularism, and so I, I don't look at this as the answer is we need to kind of pull it back to some kind of cultural Christian civil religion. I don't think that's the need, and, and you're welcome to read what I've written on this um, in the Gospel According to Culture if you want to hear my thought there more. But the observation I was making was just listening to how politicians or really actually it's more business leaders or entertainers you know maybe a couple of decades ago they would signal they would signal you know kind of their their standing using uh, more religious terminology they might get a photo opportunity at church they might just whatever it might be to show you know to show that they're a good upstanding citizen and uh, I think we, we've had enough examples of the hypocrisy of that that that, that doesn't that doesn't mean that's what they actually were. It just means that's what they perceived was needed to maintain social standing. So they would use cultural Christianity as a means to advance themselves socially into positions of power. What's interesting to see today is where that's not the case anymore, or at least not. There, there, there probably are some circles where people are still trying to use cultural Christianity towards that end. But I'm noticing more and more people are now using secular terminology for the same goal. And I think it's equally disingenuous. And so if I was somebody who was a, uh, a believer in secularism, I'd probably be really frustrated, just like as a Christian, I'm frustrated because I don't think it has anything to do with a, a genuine belief. But it's interesting to me that that's what's perceived now as a means of social advancement is actually if I want to advance into the upper echelons of the business community or media, I need to be able to speak the language of, of secularism and its ethic in order to show that I belong in those fears of society. And so as a believer, I, I look at that on the one hand, at the one hand, I, I am grateful. I'm grateful that the trappings of cultural Christianity, where I think it's actually very hard to be a disciple in that culture, where when, when am I in it for Jesus versus when is it the social standing that motivates me? The, the reality is whether we like it or not, whether it's good or bad, I, I think those era, that year is gone and I don't think it's gonna come back. And so I think instead we're moving into a time where, for me, being a confessional believer, it's going to put me in tension with what it means to be upwardly or socially mobile in our society. And my beliefs, if I hold to them, are going to be a limitation for me, not something that actually advanced me into new positions of power. You know, so I, I think I can look at I can look at the Book of Revelation and I can look at some of the, what we've referenced today and recognize that that's probably going to be part of what it means to be a disciple is, am I willing to stand firm and, and follow the example of Daniel? Am I willing to stand firm in the midst of that? And, you know, to be clear, there in a culture where it's cultural Christian, and there are countries in the world today where that is the issue. I think there's a lot of other biblical material, um, especially some of the prophets, of how do you stay faithful in a religious environment that's not living up to it? So it's not to say that one is better, but I think
0: it is a reminder to us the hour that we live in. Yes, we really wanted to re-emphasize today that the bulk of apocalyptic literature in the scriptures is meant to both call the people of God to alliance with Jesus, and then to put great hope and expectation in our heart and not something that we are to wring our hands over or again, miss the mark by trying to interpret the the signs of the times rather than posturing ourselves rightly to be found faithful when Jesus returns, and you know, early on in this podcast, we talked a lot about meta narrative and the arc of scripture, going back again to Genesis 1 and 2, that the original intention of God was to live among mankind, that he created the heavens and the earth and created every living creature and the sun and the moon. And then the, the climax, you know, of this creation is uh, mankind and, and Genesis 1, 26 and 28 made in the image of God, so that we might fellowship with him, emote, be communicative, and so on and so forth. And you see that theme throughout the rest of the scriptures consistently. Dozens of times, this statement from God that I will dwell among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And, of course, that was ruptured in, in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And then the rest of redemptive history from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 20 is this attempt by God, not this attempt, but this unfolding plan for God to reinsert himself among humanity through this family of Abraham that culminates in the person of Jesus, his sacrificial death to serve as a substitute, to, uh, to atone for the sin of mankind. But that's not even the climax there. The climax then is in this consummation at the end of time, after the first coming of Jesus and his death and his resurrection and ascension, that he will return to fulfill that original plan of God, that original design of God to dwell among mankind, to be their God, for us to be his people. And that is overwhelmingly hopeful. You know, so I think for the for the person who might find themselves wringing their hands over or getting upset about current events, what's going on in the world, and, and finding maybe they're experiencing fear or anxiety around this thought of the end times. Are things getting worse and worse and worse? You know, when you look at the biblical literature and, and in terms of, and again, we're not trying to get into the whole, the sequencing of everything, but, you know, I think it's in Second Thessalonians 2, where it talks about, you know, this this antichrist, whether, again, whether that's a, a you know, single person or a, just a a spirit that is in many people and kingdoms, but they they will arise against Jesus. And then it says that Jesus will uh, destroy them with the breath of his mouth. In fact, in verse 8, it says, The lawless one will be revealed, whom Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Just there's not even, you know, I love movies that depict these great struggles, these battles, and you have the amassing of these different armies and then these epic struggles. And and here you have almost this comic description where the armies who are pitted against Jesus will be gathered in the plain of Armageddon in Revelation 16, uh, pitted against the people of God. And then there's not even this struggle at that point. It's just they're like vaporized by the breath of his mouth. There's not a one-to-one, co-equal with Jesus, whom he has to struggle against. He is sovereignly bringing about the execution of his plan in the fullness of his timing, and we can take great comfort in that. Now, I'm not trying to explain away all pain and suffering, and that's not what this is about, but in the big, broad meta-narrative of Scripture, the tenor is overwhelmingly hopeful, and the message to the church is to take great comfort in the eventual return of Jesus and Him, righting every wrong, wiping away every tear, establishing His physical presence on the new he- in the new heavens and on the new earth once again. You have the bookends of Scripture, Genesis one and two, that are then reflected in Revelation twenty one and twenty two. Truly, it's, really, it's an interesting study if you look at how Genesis one and two are structured. Revelation twenty one and twenty two recaptures that original creation in the recreation. God poetically through, you know, through the Apostle John under the influence of the Holy Spirit, promising the church that what has been undone will be redone and then some beginning in a garden, ending in the garden city. And even then, I would argue that that's not even the culmination of redemptive history, the the culmination of human history, because even after the establishing of this garden city, the return of Jesus the scriptures talk about this this day anytime you see the word day with a capital D it's talking about this day of judgment which I think is very misunderstood and maybe we'll do an entire podcast on the idea of judgment someday in the future And I think for unbelievers, there certainly should be trepidation because the biblical teaching is that there is still a judgment of sin that remains, that those whose names are not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life in Revelation 20, I believe it is, will be cast into the second death, the eternal lake of fire, what we think of as hell. Yet for believers, the judgment is not one of sin, but one of reward and loss of reward, which is an incredible thing to contemplate because we didn't earn salvation and God created the good works for us to walk in uh, before we even came on the scene, according to Ephesians 2.10. And yet for us who, for, for when we respond to God throughout this life and store up treasures in heaven and not on earth, there will be this day of rewarding. I think the amazing thing about that and something I missed early on in my walk with Jesus is that that's not ultimately For me, I think early on, I I thought, you know, why should I be motivated by this notion of crowns and jewels and rewards? But you see in Revelation 4 that whenever the creatures give glory and honor to Jesus who's seated on the throne, the 24 elders who most biblical scholars believe to represent the people of God, an elder in Jewish thinking would have represented his tribe, his people. So, 24, you got 12 from the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 from the New Testament, the 12 apostles, just these 24 elders representing you and me that were there before Jesus on his throne. And whenever the elders give glory and honor to him, the elders are falling down before him and casting their crowns. And I believe that this is is a, a foreshadowing into the climax of history that when we meet Jesus face to face and he is unveiled in all of his worth and all of his splendor and all of his glory and magnificence and beauty, there is going to be this compulsion to lay everything back at his feet. And for those who have been faithful in this life and walked in fellowship with God and responded to his conviction and, and studied his word to know his heart and his will and have stored up treasures in heaven that are gifted to us on that day of reckoning, that when we see Jesus, there's going to be just this involuntary response to want to lay everything back at his feet. And for those who have something to show for their lives, the quality of their lives, I think it's going to be uh, that much more rich and joyful of an experience within this relational paradigm, again, this theme throughout the entire narrative of the scriptures. So to me, that is the message of the apocalypse. That is the message of the end times, that we are to look forward with incredibly hopeful and joyful anticipation and to then order our lives faithfully here, again, not wringing our hands over signs and timing, but to learn what his heart, what he values so that we can align our lives accordingly and be found faithful when he does return, that we have something to lay back at his feet on that day.
1: Amen. I think if we could take what we've talked about and just summarize it, it's probably, what are you living for? Where's our hope? If we live in light of that day, if we live in light of God's return, Jesus coming back into the world in bodily form and establishing his kingdom, then that should necessarily change the way that we live today. I would suggest taking both of our last two weeks episode that all of us could benefit from that. You know, I was reflecting with a few different people of just even, even in, our, in our culture in the United States, we need to recapture an understanding of the fear of the Lord. We need to, to recapture what it means to look for Christ's return as our ultimate hope. And those things orient us to face the challenges of this life, the, the recognition that regardless of what happens in my day, that I'm going to stand before Jesus on that day and I want to live for then. You know, I've looked at the Old Testament, and we we aren't told, and if you're familiar with the prophets and (laughs) some of the writings of Scripture, I don't know if I'm going to be Nehemiah, who has the privilege of leaving Persia and resettling Jerusalem and building the wall and all the different stuff people love to, to write about the book of Nehemiah, or if I'm going to be Jeremiah, who was a prophet who preached the word of God and was often opposed and ended his life being led involuntarily into exile in Egypt where he eventually died. I don't know. I I don't know. I don't know what we're going to see in this world. I don't know what we're going to see in this culture. I don't don't know. Um, But I do know that Christ is going to return and I do know that his kingdom is my ultimate hope. And so regardless of whether I'm Nehemiah or Jeremiah or some other character, I, I want to be found faithful. And we'll end with this thought. Matthew 24 is another very famous eschatological, to use the big word, passage in scripture where Jesus is using this language to describe these kind of uh, cataclysmic events in history. But what I think it's missed, you know, a lot of people have studied Matthew 24, and they kind of try to pull apart this theory for what the era before the Lord's return is going to look like based on that. And there's a lot of different ways you can interpret that that passage. But what gets missed is that Jesus tells four parables immediately after Matthew 24. You know, the, the, whole, the whole passage starts with the disciples asking Jesus, what are going to be the signs of, of this stuff that you're talking about? Which in context is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And, you know, Jesus gives him this whole teaching, but then he goes into these parables. And I think these parables are incredibly important. I'm not going to read them all, um, but there's one, it talks about a wise servant and it describes a servant who works in his master's household and the master goes away. And scripture says for a long time, and then he returns unexpectedly, which I think is interesting to note that the servant did not, know when the master was going to return and appears to be caught off guard by the master's return. And the point of that that parable is to say that it's going to be a blessing if that servant is found to be faithful to doing what the master gave him to do. Regardless of how long the master is gone, the point of that parable is be a wise servant so that whenever the master returns, you're faithful. Then there's another parable, the 10 virgins, which is a little more familiar. It's a story of a wedding ceremony where you had ten virgins that are that are waiting for the uh, bridegroom to show up, and half of them had oil in their lamps and half didn't, or enough oil in their lamps. And so it describes, again, the, the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and I thought that was interesting. And the, he, he returned unexpectedly. They were caught off guard by his return, but some of them had prepared and stored up oil, and some had not, and they thus missed out on the feast. Again, the point of that is not that we are going to know when the Lord is going to return. The point of that is we'll be, re- we be ready for his return no matter when it is. Then you get into the parable of the, t- of the talents, where the master hands out talents, which in, in that case is actually talking about gold and its weights of gold. And it describes what the servants do with it, where two of them take what's been given to them, and they use it for the sake of the master, not for their own sake, but they take what the master has entrusted to them and they use it. But one doesn't. He just buries it and lives his life again the master comes after a long time unexpectedly and the ones who who took what was given to them and gave it back and i love what um you're sharing mick you know it's the reality if we take what's been given to us and we lay it back at the feet of jesus and so as we give witness to his kingdom by sharing the gospel caring for the poor serving those in need whether anybody ever knows and I think that most of the heroes of our faith are the ones that we don't know their names, and we won't know their names till eternity, but they were faithful with what was entrusted to them. And the master comes back. What's he going to find? And then lastly, we have the parable of the sheep and the goats, where it's those, you know, you have the master is there, and you have, you know, it's this, it's this, it can actually be a very, very convicting parable. I encourage you to read it. But essentially, the point is, that Jesus is saying, what you did for the least of these, what you did for the poor, the hungry, the broken, is what you did for me. And he's equating his very presence on the earth with us caring for the least of these. And the, the, the people, didn't they didn't recognize it. They didn't notice. They didn't even realize what they were doing. And again, um, that one's a little different in that it's not necessarily simply referring to the return of the Lord, but it is referring to the day when we stand before Jesus. And we're going to give account for our lives. You know, we all would like to think if Jesus in bodily form was here giving me orders I would obey. But the point of that parable is, no, he is here. He's He's told us how to live, and he's put people in front of us whom we're supposed to love as we would love him. And he's given us instructions of what it means to live in his body, and we will give account for that day. And so if I were to summarize all of that, what it comes down to is is not some complicated formula for exactly, and all the big words we talked about last week, of exactly how Christ is going to return. I think there's There's benefit, obviously, in scholarship and understanding what does the apocalyptic literature say and how do we understand it both historically and speaking into our modern times. Um, But if you get confused on all that, I think you can also pull it back into the simplicity of are we living in light of eternity and Christ's return? Is that where our hope is? And if Jesus returned tomorrow, would he find us faithful? And to me, that question helps put everything else in perspective because whether or not Christ does return tomorrow or whether it's a thousand years from now, I want to be one who's counted faithful with what's been entrusted to me. Well, I know that's the same for all of us. So I do pray, Lord Jesus, help us be those who are faithful and teach us to look for your coming. In Christ's name, amen. We thank you all for listening and we'll see you back next week for Ideology.